Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton's police chief reflects on the long weekend murder and the core patrol. More affordable housing units may soon be coming to our city. What are Canada's new clean fuel regulations? Find out how you can add your voice to Disability Pride Month. The 50 best Canadian musicians are, and four Bulldogs get their names called to the NHL. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about that issue, that core patrol, downtown safety, with our in-studio guest, Hamilton Police Chief Frank Bergen. Chief Bergen, welcome to the show. How are you? Uh, Good morning, Rick, and uh, you are right. Let's try and keep cool today if we can in our city. Absolutely. So (laughs) 71% of our poll um, uh, respondents are saying they feel unsafe downtown. We'll start with that. Uh, Is that a number that surprises you? No, it's not. And uh, what's happened over the last few months is we're hearing um, semantics about what is perception of safety. But, uh, well, we were in the studio here a couple weeks ago with Mary A to Z from uh, Denninger's (laughs) and uh, as well as uh, Troy Thompson from the Thompson Pawn uh, pawn Shop. And uh, now this is what we're hearing. And we're working right now with our BIAs, our downtown BIA and our international BIA. So it's not a matter about uh, a new program. It's returning back to a commitment Mm -hmm. of a foot patrol or a core response in the downtown area. So we have two young officers, uh, Malone and Nicoletta, uh, who are going to be walking the beat in the downtown core, again, just to reconnect and to make people feel comfortable that there's a policing presence back on the street. So what does that reconnection look like? At this point right now, it, it, it has been in its infancy stage and what they're doing, uh, business card in hand and going into each of the merchants' uh, place of business, walking around and getting to know the community. Uh, the reality is we are responding every day. Our, our calls for service are increasing, violent crime, property crime, and, and our 911 into the core. Uh, consistently, we are dealing with homelessness, harm reduction, poverty, and mental illness throughout our communities. Uh, this is just another commitment. Um, it, when we had made a decision in the fall to uh, disperse some of our um, action teams, and that's addressing crime trends in our neighborhoods, this is just, again, going back to that commitment of addressing this certain, certain trend that's going on in the downtown core currently. So is this a daily thing? They're going into businesses each and every day, or is it once a week, couple times a week? What does that look like? Uh, that's actually a good good clarification, because what we had done when we first heard that, again, that these were emerging concerns of our our merchants, our BIAs, but also our hotels that we were hearing from. Uh, We then actually said, okay, officers, when you have that moment, that proactive time in your busy schedule, park and walk. Uh, But now this is going to be Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And what we are also committed to do is a proper analytics to make sure that we clearly understand cause and effect. And how are we doing? It's not about just about output. Sometimes it's about the outcome of mm-hmm. how that uh, physical presence in the core is going to change some behavior. So what kind of impact do you expect this core patrol program to have? Actually, before you answer that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll get your answer on that. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Chief of Police here in Hamilton, Frank Bergen. Uh, thanks again for coming in this morning. Uh, We had a uh, very tragic incident over the uh, long weekend in which a 16-year-old boy lost his life. Uh, His cousin, now in police custody, uh, give us some broad strokes of this police investigation. Yeah, Rick, there's no no positive outcome to this. This is a uh, a Canadian Day celebration gone wrong. It would appear that they had gone out onto the basketball court and uh, had some disagreements and, and some... Uh, fallout from that game uh, that led to then uh, that unfortunate interaction with
with uh, two cousins and mm-hmm. uh, look what we're dealing with right now and that that reverberates throughout a whole community um, just having school break now coming out of it as well but there are there's such collateral to this as well because obviously the relationships not only to the victim but also the 22 uh, year old in custody uh, so it'll be very sad and we're going to be doing everything we can to support the family and the community um, and then we'll wait now for the process to take place yeah. what what is the police services role post investigation post-arrest. We're finding now that one of the best things we can do and invest when we're dealing with conflict and and trouble within a community. Uh, There's obviously the very strong circle of investigation team. The homicide unit has taken that over uh, and that now builds the case, if you will. But victim services play a key role in in managing that that family's next days, next weeks, and and moving forward, uh, right up to actually um, assisting in court prep and being able to understand the impact of a trial. Hmm. Well, our thoughts and prayers are with uh, the family at this time, that is for sure. Back to the uh, the Corps <coughs> Patrol, which is why we have uh, Police Chief Frank Bergen in studio today to talk about downtown Hamilton safety and this Corps Patrol unit that is going, uh, meeting with businesses, uh, you know, interacting with residents who are in the downtown as well. What do you hope is going to be the impact? Well, again, I, I, as we said earlier, I think what we really want is a healthy community. Um, when we brought our action um, initiatives together, that was dealing with the many, many neighborhoods throughout our city. And what we have found is by dispersing them to uh, not only the central station, but our mountain and our east end station, uh, you have that ability to reconnect with your neighborhoods. Um, You'll see cycles and and you have to understand that policing requires uh, agility. And and those cycles have asked at different times for substations up in Concession, Dundas, Mm -hmm. and and, uh, now this has been another cycle. Um, Our calls for service have demanded us to return people to primary response, but we're going to do everything in this city to make sure that we have the opportunity to shift from not only a reactionary model, but a proaction model. And and the core is is that. It's a proaction um, event where we have the ability um, to have those conversations and those relationships. So on a beat, if there is a, a challenge, then let's hope that that business person is going to pick up the card of Malone or uh, Nicoletta or any police officer for that matter and just say, hey, I need some help. I need some advice. Uh, what can we do and what can we work together on making our, safe, our, our city safe? Is there a timeline to the core patrol initiative or is it six months, three months? Do, do you have a, an end date in mind? Rick, I don't. I do not have a, a, an end date in mind. What we have to do is we have to manage our calls for service. We have to manage the pressures of what keeps coming down that conveyor belt of our, our core function policing and uh, what we'll do is we'll make decisions um, as they as they approach us we'll make the right decision as they say policing requires um, an ability to be agile to make sure that at any particular time we can respond to a 911 emergency but, but more importantly is we can listen we can learn and and we can work together uh, with our community to make it safer and stronger I know not too long ago there was a big debate about the police budget and how much more millions would be adding to that document. Is there an extra cost to have this core patrol? No extra cost. Um, we are going to borne that cost from already resources within uh, Station 10. Um, and so, no, no net new pressures on that. Uh, 
Uh, but Rick, you, you, budget day is every day for us. We have to mind our, our, our nickels and dimes to make sure that we can save those dollars for our community. But more importantly, we have to work with our community partners. Um, what I heard earlier in a segment is very encouraging as Hamilton is home and, and the nonprofits working together on some encampment challenges, mm-hmm. transitional housing. Um, that's part of the whole community safety and well-being umbrella where we play a vital role. But that vital role is, is difficult when you're caught always responding to an emergency. What we need is risk intervention and prevention. Core policing is preventative policing. Mm-hmm. Has, in, in regards to encampments and, and the housing crisis, have Hamilton police tweaked, adjusted how they interact with those in encampments? I know there's a lot of people in encampments and, and advocates for those people who say, we don't want police around. Yeah, and, and our social navigator program and our, our coast program have be absolutely been working with our, our community partners. Uh, when we were last in studio, we had also talked about our rapid intervention support team. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have eight amazing uh, partners who every day are looking at files. So what we're, we're able to do is transfer that hands-on or that response from police to, to a better service for it. So we are absolutely seeing the efficacy of that commitment. And uh, we're very encouraged that that this this larger conversation about the impact, it does not diminish the fact that our calls for service are increasing. Our assist ambulance calls are increasing in the encampments. We have we have some cycles of violence that move through it. uh, But we're working with our partners to make sure that we can create a safe environment for everybody. When it comes to downtown safety, we've only got about a minute. Um, Are we seeing crimes that are more common than others? There's not a. There's nothing that I can put my finger on. Uh, we do have panhandling. We do have um, some disturbances. We work closely with our partners at Jackson Square and, and just trying to deal with what is a transient movement of people throughout our city. Um, so no, Rick. There's not anything one unique challenge to the core. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we need to do is we need to make sure that everybody in our community understands that that in, in many cases, it's not just a handout, but it's a hand up and how we can work with everybody in our community to understand what homelessness, harm reduction, uh, poverty, mental illness. And the other thing that we might want to reserve some time for at a future talk is the growing challenge of the opioid crisis on our streets. Um, And we are working with our policing partners throughout the province and our public health um, to make sure that we can manage these growing trends uh, of different drugs throughout our community. We'll certainly have to have you back with that uh, discussion for sure. Chief Bergen, thanks for the time today. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. From downtown safety to what is a massive issue in this community, and that is the housing crunch, the housing crisis. And on the horizon might be a huge, huge plan that gets a check mark. It's from a coalition of nonprofit community groups in the city, and it's basically waiting for Hamilton Council to give the plan a thumbs up to go and get some federal and provincial funding to make this happen here to explain what is happening on good morning hamilton on 900 chml is graham cubitt the director of projects and development at indwell a christian charity that creates affordable housing graham good morning welcome to the show good morning rick tell us about this hamilton is home coalition who is a part of this sure hamilton is home is uh eight Hamilton-based nonprofits were the leading developers of supportive and affordable housing. So 
typical social housing, you know, where it's rent geared to income or, or general affordability, right through the supportive spectrum. And so we we really cover the bases when it when it comes to housing issues. And most uh, importantly, we're willing and able to develop. We've got proven track records across our organizations of actually getting stuff built. And so I think that that's the uh, the key that we're looking at here, especially in this issue of encampments. How do we build the supportive housing that we need? Because that's really the sustainable way out of this. So tell us how it's going to be done. What is the plan? Well, when we looked at our big portfolio of projects that were possible, we, we narrowed it down to say, okay, what's, what's feasible on the supportive housing? It's about 418 units uh, in total when we added it up, which is actually double the Hamilton Sustainability and Investment Roadmap, the new roadmap the city set out for supportive housing. So it really would move the needle on getting people out of shelters, out of encampments, out of sort of very precarious situations. So that's that's the macro. How do we build 400 units? Uh, and we've broken that down by each organization that would be delivering supportive housing. So uh, Indwell, obviously, is one of them. I, I'm part of Indwell. Uh, but Sacagawea nonprofit homes focused on Indigenous housing, YWCA, and Good Shepherd being the other two. So between the four of us, we have eight projects that are possible to get started you know, as soon as 30 days from now with building permits. So you need council approval to start requesting funding to make this supportive housing project uh, a reality. Where does it stand? That's right. Uh, the way that the federal programs work through CMHC is that you need a co-investor, they call it, so uh, the co-investment program. And the co-investor typically is the municipality. It means that the city has to, one, endorse a project, and two, put something in the game. Um, it's typically around 10%, 20%, somewhere in that range that's needed for the municipality to put in. Um, right now, unfortunately, we haven't had endorsement from council yet uh, on this, you know, this portfolio of projects. And so we're waiting for City Hall to get behind the initiative in order for us as organizations to actually make those applications to the federal and provincial government. Is there a sense now, that the city will, in fact, take a step forward in this regard? I do believe so. Yeah, we, I mean, the encampment uh, sessions that have been going on, the big community consultations, it's very, very clear that uh, our community is concerned about uh, the encampment problems. I just heard you saying that 81% of people don't feel safe downtown. These are the these are the issues that we're facing as a community. It's top of mind for, for council and for staff, and I think there's a report coming back in August about what to do. We want to see uh, a decision this summer about this portfolio because if we if we don't get ahead of building the supportive housing, there's no way out of, you know, we can't build our way out of, we can't build more shelters. We can't, you know, enforce uh, our way out of a homelessness crisis. It really is supportive housing. So with uh, with, with council's backing, um, you know, we're working with each, you know, talking to councillors. Everybody knows about this, this proposal. We're working with the mayor's office to say this is what's possible. The city doesn't even have to do the heavy lifting per se. But uh, they just need to say, yeah, this strategy, this overall goal works for our city and we're going to we're going to get behind it because the federal government, you know, it's almost formulaic, not quite. But uh, 50 percent of the funds can come from the feds for the capital. Twenty five percent can come from the province. It's really getting the province to come on board with the operating funds. That's that's a key piece. And that's why, you know, key alignment with the with the city on the strategy will make all the difference. So you only got about 30 seconds. Let's look through a positive lens here and say City Council will be fully on board with this project. How soon can we see these units come online? 
within 15 months, we can have people moving in. Uh, we can have permits issued for the first projects within 30 days. Wow, that is pretty quick, and let's hope that gets done. Graham, really appreciate the time. Love to uh, follow up with you once uh, the shovels hit the ground, that's for sure. Look forward to it, Rick. Thanks. Graham Cubitt is the Director of Projects and Development at Indwell, and that sounds like a fascinating program that will do a lot of good in this community. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A couple of things are going to hit your pocketbook, or have been hitting your pocketbook. Obviously, gas prices. If you drive to and from work, if you are a commuter, whether you are or not, you you pay for trucking companies to deliver groceries based on gas prices. If they're going up, though, the price of that food is going to go up as well. Not only are gas prices going up this summer, but we have another hike in the carbon tax that took effect on Saturday and something new that came into effect on Canada Day called Clean Fuel Regulations. What the heck is that? Well, let's ask the experts. He's joining us now. His name is Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dan, good morning. How are you? It is a good morning. Uh, thanks for reminding me of Chilliwack. I probably like to hear some of this stuff. Henderson <laughs> yeah. is the leader. Yeah, Paul Henderson. great band. He, he was just um, inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, which is awesome. Good for him. Uh, he did a lot of work. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Of, uh, entertainment, so... Uh, Canadians uh, for a lot of other entertainers when had headed up uh, the group that was uh, responsible for uh, promoting uh, Canadian content. Great stuff. Yeah, there you go. Let's start with the carbon tax because this has been around for a while, but it reached a new plateau on Saturday. Tell us about that. Rick, uh, in some provinces, especially Atlantic Canada, uh, they had their own carbon tax system. Um, it was the exception Nova Scotia, had a very small cap in trade. Uh, the federal government uh, proceeded with saying that's not acceptable and we want you to uh, follow ours. So Newfoundland PEI uh, saw an increase of about four cents a litre for the first carbon tax, um, which has been around at least, and we've been paying now for the past few years. We're at about 14.31 cents a litre plus HST, so about 16.2 cents a litre. Maritimes uh, on July 1st saw... uh, those uh, that carbon tax reached parity. In other words, day two had to had an extra four or five cents a liter in one fell swoop. Nova Scotia's case, the tax there was only two cents, and it zoomed up all the way to sixteen cents a liter. So, in one day, they saw prices go up fourteen cents for the first carbon tax, and then of course the second one called the clean fuel regulation it used to be called a clean fuel standard. Um, it's where re- uh, refiners are required to pay. Uh, to, for emissions. In other words, uh, more CO2, they have to pay more. And to do that, they have to either mix a lot of ethanol uh, into their gasoline or they have to pay a credit for a credit, a, uh, uh, an adjustment, if you will. And so that added another four cents a liter. So in Nova Scotia's case, they had a, in one moment, they had what about almost a 17 cent, 18 cent increase. <laughs> They're going to get a little bit more next week. Very complicated, but it really means that Canada has set itself upon this idea that we have to have not one but two carbon taxes. Some people don't like that term. They say, oh, it's not a carbon tax. It's basically, you know, we're trying to get you to reduce the emissions. But Atlanta, Canada saw it. Most of the rest of the country did not see much of anything. That's because uh, refineries here in the Golden Horseshoe in Hamilton, Toronto, Niagara, our refineries have started the process of putting a lot more ethanol in your gasoline, going from about 5% to 
to 15%, including premium. Uh, that may not seem like a big deal, no big deal. Hey, great, let's use food to make fuel. But the reality is that uh, you actually wind up with a lot less uh, uh, mileage. Your mileage will start to suffer a little bit uh, because, uh, of course, ethanol is not gasoline. It doesn't burn quite the same way. And so uh, that's really the only effect most of the country felt on July 1st. Is there going to be an impact here in Ontario in the years to come when it comes to the clean fuel regulations, or are we okay? Uh, no. Uh, once the blending is over, the, the, the quick fix, because refiners are required to reduce their emissions 15%, blending up to 15% ethanol, which is really the maximum most vehicles can tolerate, uh, at which point you start to create some problems, damage the engine, the emission system, uh, etc. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of mechanics, I'm sure, listening, saying, oh, no, no, it's more than that, uh, especially if you have an older vehicle or small engines, whatnot. Starting in 2025, you then have to, uh, refiners are going to have to turn to the uh, carbon credit market. And to do that, uh, price will be, according, when we did a report on this, the uh, LFX and Associates, uh, last year, uh, we calculated about 17 cents a liter minimum, but a lot closer to 30 cents a liter. So as where the first carbon tax increases by another 30 cents or so, this one is going to add at least another 17 to 30 cents a liter by 2030. So uh, it's not over uh, by any shot. Uh, with HST, probably about 65 cents a liter and about 75 cents a liter for diesel. So it's uh, it's going to get very expensive to drive in the future. Uh, this is a very intended policy, uh, which wants you out of your vehicle, uh, maybe taking motorcycles, uh, sorry, <laughs> scooters, or perhaps uh, buy yourself a nice big expensive EV, which, uh, as we know, doesn't work so well in the winter. Yeah. Uh, last one for you, got about a minute. This was the, on Saturday, this was the second increase, I think, to the carbon taxes. How, how many more do we have of these? You have one every year on April 1st. Uh, and the problem, of course, is that it's really the Maritimes that cast a much wider shadow. The Maritimes will start to see the carbon tax changes harmonized with the rest of Canada on April Fool's Day, on April 1st, rather than July 1st. So everyone's going to be able to grumble come uh, May 1. Uh, we'll be going up about three and a half, four cents a litre for gasoline and about uh, four and a half, five for diesel, which means, of course, higher prices for everything, including food. Yikes. Dan, appreciate the time as always. Always a pleasure. Have a great week. Thanks, you too. Sir. Dan McTague, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This month is Disability Pride Month, and it offers community members to speak out about the barriers they face and the creative solutions that they have found to overcome those barriers. Here's an individual who does this basically on a daily basis, not just in the month of July, that's for sure. Anthony Frazina, he's the founder of Above and Beyond, volunteer director of media relations with the Ontario Disability Coalition, and joins us now on GMH. Anthony, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. Disability Pride Month. What's this all about? Disability Pride Month although unofficially recognized in Canada, amplifies the voices of the over 6.4 million Canadians worldwide that identify as members of the disability community. And we have to remember, Rick, that disability is the only demographic with a fluctuating rate, meaning disability can happen to anyone at any, any time. So we really want to take this month and months going forward to not only set the precedence of what disability looks like and to be more... Um, uh, prevalent going forward, that disability is not a negative. Disability is not something that somebody is broken. You know, we don't need a cure. We don't need to be fixed. We just need acceptance. We need the opportunity to provide 
provide solutions every day going forward to improve our quality of life as members of the disability community. So how are people speaking out about, as I mentioned, some of the barriers that they face? Well, absolutely, Rick. And we, we got a huge win last week when we passed the Canadian Disability Benefit. So that's going to help many members of uh, our community that you know live at the legislative poverty line to get us out of poverty, to give a quality of life for people with disabilities that we deserve to live, you know, rather than something that is, you know, essentially dictated for us uh, by other means. What are some of those barriers that you face that, uh, you know, quote unquote, normal people would not, you know, look at as a barrier? Uh, Well, I think, Rick, the biggest barriers for people with disabilities are attitudinal perception versus reality. I know for me, there's a lot of assumptive based mindsets, well, that you have a disability that that you can't do this or you can't do that. It may look unorthodox to somebody who's uneducated with uh, my lived experiences and how I do certain things in life. Mm -hmm. But it's about giving that message and putting that message forward that it may look a little different, but the at the end of the day, the the accomplishment of a task is is completed. Are there barriers where when you encounter them and you must think to yourself, boy, this is still happening? Like this is still a factor? Oh, 100%. You know, and and it comes down to, again, that the idea of, uh, you know, the perception of people with disabilities as liabilities rather than assets. You know, in Canada or in Hamilton, uh, the percentage of people with disabilities is 27.7% greater than the provincial and national averages. And we have to get over that hurdle uh, of, you know, the, the perception of liability rather than, uh, you know, in pre- having people with disabilities, uh, you know, as assets, you know, our lived experiences matter. And, you know, oftentimes that, you know, that gets only to a certain level, reaches a certain plateau, but then levels off. And we need to, uh, as a community, come together and change that. Are, are there any details on why that percentage is as high as it is in Hamilton? Is, or Are there great supports in this community? Uh, You know, the supports are certainly getting better, but we really do need to, you know, step it up here in Hamilton, you know, getting people with uh, without disabilities, you know, being allies with us, you know, supporting us in the ways that, you know, people with disabilities need, you know, we just had a segment on affordable housing, but what Mm -hmm. about accessible housing, the need for people with disabilities to live with dignity, integrity and respect something that you know quite often gets overlooked and overshadowed not only here in in hamilton but in canada and worldwide you just uh, were by the way we're chatting with uh, anthony frazina founder of above and beyond volunteer director of media relations with the ontario disability coalition and we're discussing disability pride month here in july it's not officially recognized in canada although i'm assuming maybe by this time next year it will be but you just had an incident uh on concession streets that you know w- when it comes to barriers you faced one head on so to speak yeah quite literally actually yeah. you know um making my way southeast on concession towards Upper Wentworth, the curb cut, uh, there was a a gap in the curb cut, which essentially uh, led to my wheelchair going forward. And, you know, I always believe in a solutions-based approach. And uh, Esther Pauls and the Ward 7 uh, team really stepped up and and brought the the solution forward. But it was more of a band-aid solution and we need to look at solutions that have a a long-term effect i don't really believe in you know this whole idea of a band-aid you know just a, a quick fix i think we need to have more solutions that have a long-standing um and and longevity to them 
Yeah, and there's a just a small example of, you know, a, a barrier that doesn't really exist for an able-bodied person and someone who relies on a mobility device will encounter that as you had and see it as a negative. And let's hope that the city goes as, as you know, above and beyond in fixing and, and remedying that situation. Anthony, we'll have to leave itself. Yeah, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much, Rick. I appreciate it. Anthony Frazina is the founder of Above and Beyond, volunteer director of media relations at the Ontario Disability Coalition. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Rolling Stone is out with its list of the 50 best Canadian musicians ever. In fact, they released this on Saturday to celebrate Canada Day. Who's number one and which artists and groups got snubbed? Well, the artists you just heard are Kells. Believe it or not, not even on the list. How can that be, Eric Alper, publicist and music commentator who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton? Eric, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Arkells, they're missing. Yeah, they are missing. And in fact, when you go through the list, um, there are a number of artists that really, really stood out, um, you know, Number one is Joni Mitchell. Number two was Neil Young. And number three was Rush, followed by Leonard Cohen and Drake at number five. Um, Arkells was off the list. Paul Anka was off the list. Um, Guy Lombardo, one of the biggest artists in music history with 250 million albums sold back in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. He's off the list. Oscar Peterson is off the list. Um, I think in the case of the Arkells, when you go through their their list of... Um, of artists it's it's almost like they chose bands and musicians who have broken through in some either sales way or influential way Hmm. that's why artists like doa the punk band from vancouver and party next door is on a number 39 i think that's why they're on the list is because they've actually been able to make a lot of inroads where bands are influenced by them i'm surprised that the arkells weren't on the list considering in about 10 years we we might be talking about this group like the most historic artists that we do they're going to get in the canadian music hall of fame if they continue they're going to get in the songwriting hall of fame here in canada um but surprisingly the biggest one there's no nickelback mm-hmm. um and i know that some fans are like nickelback, but <laughs> you know they've got 75 million albums sold they've had number one hits and albums and songs in america and how you remind me with the biggest selling single of the 1990 of, of that era of the 1990s in America. So I think that they took a look at their last list of the greatest singers of all time and left out Celine Dion and saw the sheer amount of buzz that they got <laughs> and said, well, let's just leave off the most obvious one this time just to anger the the uh, Canadians. And uh, I think that's why Nickelback isn't on here. Yeah, Celine Dion is on the list this time around. She's ranked at number 10. Alanis Morissette, ninth. The Weeknd, eighth. Shania Twain, Seven, the band six, not a bad top 10 when you look at it from one to 10. No. And they say at the beginning of it that, you know, apologies to the Cowboy Junkies and Bruce Coburn, um, Chilliwack, the Weaker Thans, you know, other lists. I mean, you've got to narrow it down to 50. And that's that's really tough when you consider even the last 25 years of Canadians breaking through. Um, Surprising. I mean, Snow is in at number 50 Mm -hmm. um, probably because of his influence, not only of the one hit wonder of informer, um, but he really brought 
reggae music to North America in a way that hasn't been seen in a long, long time back in that day. Um, and Martha and the Muffins on at number 49. Um, a lot of people may just know them through their their one song, Echo Beach, that was a hit, but they actually had quite a bit afterwards um, and really... Um, really kind of made the 80s what they were um, in Canada and in America. Uh, April Wine at number 47 was a surprise too. Um, not just because they, you know, look, that band has 10 Juno nominations um, and hasn't won, but they be they were the first Canadian band to hit a million dollar gross from a single tour back in the day. And a million dollars is basically what Taylor Swift makes in about 45 minutes performing <laughs> now. But, you know, when they first started in the early 1970s, mid 70s, that was a huge number to hit. We're talking about Rolling Stone's list of the 50 best Canadian musicians with Eric Alper, publicist and music commentator. we got a couple more minutes with Eric. Just outside the top 10 is Gordon Lightfoot at number 11. And at number 14 is where I start to get mm, a little, maybe miffed is too strong of a word, but I start to question the list because Carly Rae Jepsen, who's a phenomenal artist, is in at number 14. But just further down the list at number 17 is Justin Bieber. How can Carly Rae be ahead of the Biebs? Yeah, that was interesting because I don't I don't knock Rolling Stone for mentioning both artists. Um, uh, Justin Bieber obviously has had the success. He sold 150 million singles throughout his career, most of it uh, in, in North America. Carly Rae is interesting because a lot of people just know her from Call Me Maybe and then disappeared. But Rolling Stone, Spin Magazine, Pitchfork, three of the biggest um, and most influential kind of media outlets in America love Carly Rae Jepsen. They love all of the, the, the several albums that she has released. They all think that Carly Rae just might be one of the great pop artists of our time, even though that she might not be on the radio as much. Um, she is a huge media magnet for her albums. And uh, they they love the fact that she's bright and shiny. And even though that she had the one viral hit, she has continued to make perfect pop albums and uh rolling stone has recognized that so it's not just for the one song but it's for i think she's got three or four pretty amazing and critically acclaimed albums after that oh six albums in so hmm. yeah so that that's that's why she's on that list yeah she's also ahead of the tragically hip at 18 um avril lavigne at 22 sarah mclaughlin at 24 the guess who at 26 sean mendes 27 like major superstars are behind uh, Carly Rae Jepsen, which I will I will question, but we'll have to leave it there. Eric, appreciate your time as always this morning. Thank you so much, Rick. We'll talk soon. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you're a hockey fan, you were certainly tuned in to the NHL draft last week. It wasn't the most exciting of drafts. Not a lot of trades. Not a lot of movements from team to team. You know, the, the the expected happened at the top of the draft with Connor Bedard going number one overall to the Chicago Blackhawks. However, if you are a fan of the Brantford Bulldogs, you were thoroughly entertained come round three and four and beyond. Because four players on the Bulldogs were selected in the NHL draft last week. Nick Lardis was the first off the board, third round, 67th overall. He is going to go play with Connor Bedard in Chicago. Patrick Thomas, fourth round, 104th overall, going to play with Alexander Ovechkin of the Washington Capitals. How cool is that? Cole Brown going to one of the 
up-and-coming hot teams out there in the New Jersey Devils. Sixth-round draft pick, Florian Jackice going to the Montreal Canadiens to play with his brother Arbor. He was drafted in the fourth round, 101st overall. And that's where we bring you to our next guest. Because I'm sure she was elated when her son, Florian Jackye, was selected by the Habs. Joining us on GMH, Simona Jackye, the mother of Montreal Canadiens' new draft pick, Florian Jackye. Simone, good mo- or Simona, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Very well. How are you? I'm good. I, I would imagine it was a pretty wild week last week. Oh, I cannot even explain. I, can, I cannot uh, get my head around it still. It's uh, pretty surreal. Yes. <laughs> was there an indication that Montreal was interested because Arbor already plays there? Did did you hear from Montreal? Not at all. Yeah, Florian had a couple of good discussions that he had with another 20 teams. So it, uh, you know, was uh, not surprise, but, uh, you know, that he was talking to them. But uh, no, that they would pick him, that was absolutely shocking. So Florian selected in the fourth round, 101st overall. So 100 picks are... 101. 100 (laughs) picks are made before you hear Florian Jackye's name. When you hear your son get drafted by the Montreal Canadiens, what was going through your mind? Well, it was kind of crazy because we were suspecting that he's going to get drafted uh, maybe end of the fourth round, maybe beginning of the fifth. And uh, what we were expecting really was uh, Florida picking him. And uh, so when the fourth round started, I said to my daughter, Dominica, I said, start taping. I said, I have got probably another 20 minutes, so I'm going to, you know, go blow dry my hair. So I was in the bathroom (laughs) and uh, suddenly I, you know, put my blow dry on and I hear, mom. So I ran downstairs with my blow dryer in my hand, and uh, yeah, here was his name on a TV screen, and it says Montreal Canadian, and I was kind of hysterical, hugged my husband, and that, that was pretty much it. So you were blow drying your hair when your son was yes. drafted. <laughs> yes. That is a great and story. He was, uh, he was uh, working out at the gym, like he went, uh, you know, around his business, because I mean, you know, draft me in kind of... Nothing, really, because, uh, you know, as we know with Arbor, he was never selected. And uh, like you said, well, if you don't get drafted, you know, lives go on, right? So you might as well not sit around and wait for your name to be picked. You go, you know, work on your uh, craft, right? So he was in a gym, actually, with Patrick Thomas, working out when his phone rang. And, yeah. That is pretty cool. Simona Jackai is the mother of Montreal Canadiens' new draft pick, Florian Jackai, selected 101st overall last week in the NHL draft. Now, you have a number of amazing posts on social media, including one where you have a picture of two Montreal Canadiens pillows. Describe that for our listeners. That's um, a pillow that uh, my neighbor made for uh, my boys uh, 18 years ago. Like, I think Florian was just one year old and uh, Arbor was three years old. And uh, I don't know if your listeners uh, heard uh, the story that um, uh, Sportsnet uh, published. Uh, But uh, my husband was really big Montreal fans and uh, so... The boys kind of grew up Montreal fans, and uh, they were always playing, you know, uh, street hockey. And, uh, yeah, my neighbor made them pillows, and uh, 
they had them on their bed with uh, engraved their names and um when Florian got selected, I <laughs> jump upstairs and I'm like, this is, you know, meant to be. Yeah. Yeah, there, there are two Montreal Canadiens pillows. One has Florian's name on it. The other one's Arbor. And they're going to be playing together in Montreal. That is going to be an amazing sight to see. Simona, thanks for the time. Congratulations. I know you and your husband are proud parents of two amazing sons who are now in the National Hockey League. Thanks for the time today. Thank you very much, Rick. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Simona Jackai. Blow-drying her hair in the washroom as her son Florian is getting drafted in the NHL. That is a remarkable story. Congratulations to the Jack Eye family. What a phenomenal future they have in the National Hockey League. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.